But the beauty of startups is basically you have a super ambitious team it's trying to do something that nobody else is doing and they get it to work. Yeah. So that, that is, if you have those three things in combination, that's where the magic is, right? So super ambitious team does something that customers want and nobody else is trying to do that. If you have, if you have those three things in whatever combination, you know, with a, with a model that can scale rapidly and produce big companies, that, that's what I'm interested in. Okay, guys, welcome back to the Backstuff Show. On this week, we have, he's a great friend of mine and an investor in Stakester, so he knows exactly what he's doing when it comes to investments. It's Jens Lipinski. He is the former MD of Techstars in Berlin. He worked for Ford Partners. He's a massive deal. And he's now the CEO of Angel Invest, who's probably one of the most active angel investors in Europe. If he says he isn't, it's a lie. He definitely is. Um, and uh, he's also an amazing mentor to founders, getting them from that process of being pre-seed or seed all the way through to series a so super delighted to have him on the show uh full disclosure we did record this in the past but i ruined it and uh didn't record it properly so we're coming back to this so hopefully it's going to be even better than the ones you guys didn't actually listen to all right so here he is so look Jens, i gave you a bit of an intro there but tell me about it what are the things you're what do you do right now and what are the things that you're working on that are exciting thanks for having me again so so what do I do? I mean, I make about 20 angel investments a year, you know, invest 100,000 or so euros initially and then more later on. And once I'm invested, I um, coach the founders through to the next round of funding, which is typically series A round or so. Um, what I'm looking for specifically right now, you know, it, it, that hasn't actually changed. I mean, I, I, what I'm looking at, look, the beauty of startups is basically you have a super ambitious team trying to do something that nobody else is doing and they get it to work yeah so that that is if you have those three things in combination that's where the magic is right so super ambitious team does something that customers want and nobody else is trying to do that if you have if you have those three things in whatever combination you know with a, with a model that can scale rapidly and produce big companies that that's what i'm interested in and and my job is not to have you know, an intrinsic super mega interest in this area or that area or that area. My, my interest has to be more in, you know, helping founders build awesome companies. That's my interest. And, and you know, then what sits underneath that, that that's their interest. So that, that's sort of how I think about it. I like that a lot. I'm going to go straight into get some details on some bits there because <clears throat> it is important. So when a founder comes and uh, pitches to you or when in your previous lives at other places and tech stars and so forth, it's really easy to say when you talk about being ambitious. Ambitious is obviously a spectrum. You get some people where they describe them as ambitious. They want to be club champion at tennis, or you know, but other people want to be world champion. There are spectrums to ambition. So what what counts as ambitious when you're speaking to a founder, and what should they be saying when they meet? Uh, because I know from my own experience, and actually one of your previous employers turned me down because they thought that I was being unambitious with the scale of what I thought my business could achieve. And that's something I never expected to hear. So it hit me quite hard. Um, it's not something most people would say about me. But you, to so tell me, what, what, what should people be saying when they talk about ambition? I mean, look, when I was at Techstars, we were just looking, I mean, we said that we were looking for all sorts of things, but at the end, in the end, we just, we're looking literally just at the teams. Team, 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 that was it. Right, everything else is like an excuse. So you're looking for a team that's where the individuals within it are strong. What does that mean? You know, Warren Buffett rules, highly intelligent, super hardworking, 
not crooks, because if one of those three is not true, you have a problem, right? Yeah. Um, so really dumb people, really lazy and crooks, you know, that's right. <laughs> Maybe the worst combination. Anyway, so you're looking for that, obviously, then, then you just try to see, is this team really tight? Meaning, do they, do they really know, is it a team? Or is it just some people who met last weekend and, and have decided that, you know, maybe they want to work together or something like that? Yeah. And then the third area is in terms of their skill sets and what they can deliver, can they get enough? Do they have enough substance there to, to, to deliver the minimum viable product to customers? Right. It's like, so for example, I just turned down a team, they've got a CEO, they've got a COO, and then just hired a CTO, and that doesn't really work for me. Right. So, because the, the technical component, maybe that person is there, but that person isn't integrated in the team. And, you know, that, that's just sort of like the combination that, that, that I don't want to see. So what I would want to have is strong individuals. They are tight as a team and they've got the capabilities needed to actually build a product and get it into the hands of customers. So that's sort of, that's sort of like table stakes. You know, that, that's what it takes to get into tech stars, right? If you then want to raise money from later stage investors, you have to show more. What does that mean? Well, you, you really have to, number one, understand the superb understanding of your customers. Who exactly is my customer? What exactly is their problem? Now, what's the job to be done? What's my value proposition? And how am I going to build a product that does the job and delivers the value proposition? If you can't articulate that, you know, I, there's no point really in talking to investors because then somebody's just throwing darts into the blind or something like that. doesn't really make any sense to invest at that point. You know, but if, if you can then articulate within that, look, there's something that I've figured out that nobody else has figured out. And everybody thinks it's like this, but it's wrong. And I can prove why. And here's why. And look, if it's like this, this is actually how it's going to work. Yeah. That's sort of like the light bulb moment where you really haven't had just had an idea, but an insight in, into, your, into your customer and into your market. Right. And that's sort of for me, that's the, that's the second point. And then everything that comes after that saying, hey, look, we actually built the product. It is working and it is delivering, you know, the value proposition. You know, at that point, I think most investors will start to really take notice. I love that a lot. So um, on the team thing, that team composition at the beginning, um, I'm going to come back to the other things you said. I'm super interested in the team thing because look, I personally believe the same thing as you. Like, great, the best teams build the best companies. So, and obviously that's the textiles model. If you that team, is it purely a case of, if I'm to summarize what you said, finding a group of individuals that have, that share the same vision and work cohesively together, but have the skills necessary to execute on that vision primarily? Yeah. Yeah. And so when you speak then about, when you go further down the line, you start showing evidence of understanding who your customer is and so forth, really deeply understanding it. The earlier you go, the less you know that. So is it about demonstrating to investors that you can see a clear path of how you would do that? Um, and do you, is it a turnoff for you? Um, and I say this from my own experience as an investor. I sometimes get a bit turned off by if someone says to me before they've got traction, this is exactly who my customer is. Because I'm a bit like, well, you don't know that yet. You need to go and figure it out first. So what should people be saying in that persona discussion around that audience, that market piece? I think. It's not what people should say. I mean, they should just say it as a, in the way in which it is. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So um, it's more, the, the question is, let's just forget about investment for a little while. What you want to do as a founder is 
you really want to figure out who your customers are, what problem they have, and how you're going to fix it for them. Yeah. And then you obviously need to build a product that does that or the service or whatever, whatever you do. And um, there are a couple of inflection points along that journey where the value of the company goes up a step because you really, you've talked to 50 customers, you can prove they have this problem. Maybe you've got some letters of intent if it's an enterprise type sale, or you know, maybe you've got a really long wait list, you've got lots of word of mouth, but you haven't actually done anything yet. Yeah. And then um, the, the, you know, maybe there is a step up in valuation or in value of your company. So at that point, it might make sense to raise capital. It might not make. Yeah. Then the question is just like, okay, so how much money do I actually need, or how long, how long do I need to get to the next proof point? Yeah. What's actually involved in getting there? Oh, it's actually just a month of work. Maybe we bootstrap a little longer, because why raise now, right? Why not raise in a month where we can raise more at a higher valuation from maybe better investors, right? And then the question is just rinse and repeat. And there comes a point where, where you realize, oh, okay, at that point, it really makes sense to raise X amount from these types of investors. Yeah, because that, that is really then at that point, we've exhausted our own resources. Um, and, it, and it really is, is, it's a great inflection point at which it really makes sense to, to raise more capital because we can articulate quite clearly, quite clearly where the journey is going to go. Yeah, I think there's, um, <clears throat> so that raises the next question, I suppose, is, we obviously we started talking a little bit about investment and that being your area, but obviously you see a lot of companies that, you know, the the primary primary element there isn't about raising money. That's not the purpose of your business. Isn't to raise money. The purpose of your business is to be successful independently. You're raising money just helps you go faster. It's the it's the fuel. It's not the engine. Yeah. So when you're at that early stage, I'd love to hear because obviously you've seen so many businesses, and I argue that you've probably seen more businesses than anyone else in Europe of that type, what, what are some of the mistakes that people make? And what are some of the things that people do yeah, that is, it's absolutely imperative to get right? So what do you see people wasting time on and doing things that they shouldn't? And where do you see people doing things that they absolutely should be doing it? Um, but that's something they should spend more time. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think there are, there are two distinctions that are probably worth making. So there are things that kill startups and there are things that just cost you a lot of time. Yes, nice. So. Things that kill startups repeatedly is number one, the team fights. Yeah. Number two, they build something that customers don't want. Number three, somebody else builds it better. It's, it's- I've actually challenged our intern to a fight. He said no. So um, yeah, luckily, yeah, that's uh, that's that's what we do here. Everyone has to fight me. Everyone has to fight me when they join the company. It's just part of the deal. Yeah. Fights on stakes that are exempt from this. Definition. Okay, fine. Okay, fine. That's our that's our jam. Um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. So obviously, people. So the three yeah. things. So so obviously, the mistake that you can make is you team up with people with whom you can't work, or where you have a broken team, or an incomplete team, or a team that's just not strong enough, something like that, right? Team that fights, um, fights for power, fights for control, fights for whatever reason, ego, uh, vanity, you know, big. So you you want to avoid that at all costs. That's the most important thing. It's really quite life destructive. And the second thing is, is really not to talk to customers enough or not in the right kind of way. And then to build something that people actually don't want. Typically, oh, yeah, we're going to launch in 12 months. It's going to be a big launch type thing tends to be a bad idea more often than not, um, particularly when it's around software. Uh, and then the third thing is to, to go into a space where there is endless competition and you have no real differentiation. At the end of the day, you're probably going to get crushed some, somehow. Yeah. So. Um, so I think that's pretty much that. Um, now, 
if you avoid those those three like killer mistakes, the things that slow people down all the time are, oh gosh, there's so many of them, Tom. I mean, <laughs> we talk about it every second Friday, right? Correct. <laughs> so there's about 40 or 50 things that, that, that people have, that people need to work through in a certain sequence. And whenever you do one of these things wrong, it just costs you weeks or months. Yeah. And so the most frequent ones are typically release cycles are far too long. Yeah, it's it's a you build something for three months, you test it with customers. It's probably just it's it's too lengthy. You need to you need to the iteration cycle needs to be as short as possible. Your job is not to build a perfect product, launch it to customers. Your job is to learn initially, you know, as quickly as you possibly can what customers really want, and to validate you that your initial hypotheses are correct. So that implies you have a short release cycle where you can test and you iterate and you test and you iterate, right? So, so you know, you basically build, talk to customers, build product, and, and the cycle of that should be as fast as, as possible. Um, other things that people do wrong is sometimes they raise capital, a lot of capital quite quickly. Yeah. And then what happens is um, they just build up these enormous teams of 15, 20 people in, in, within months, and they actually have no idea what they're going to do with all of these people. And then they need to organize them, they need to manage them, and so on and so forth. I, I would try to keep the initial team to as small as possible. People frequently talk about maximum number of six people in this context, and I've, I found this to be valid as well. And then with those... Six people until when? I mean, as a generalization, but it's until you think you really have figured something out that's really, you know, that, that, that is really true. Yeah. Until you've figured out really what customers want, and you can prove it to yourself, you can prove it to other people. Now, depending on what you do, this might be too few people. It might be too many people. Yeah, but it's it's that sort of you know people talk about the that that's what six people is what a big pizza can feed. So that's that's the rule of thumb that quite a lot of people use in this context. Um, and the the other thing that that I see, you know, the 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 inverse can also be true. I see a lot of single founders in particular uh, who surround themselves with a very large number of freelancers. Yeah, so they raise a couple of hundred K and they don't build a team. Yeah, It's just a freelancer does this for me and there's another one over there and there's another one over there and then she does this and he does this. You know, And then they've spent the money and then maybe they've built something, but whatever the, the, the situation that they're in is they've built a company that's not investable because there's no team to, to invest in. Yeah, And then when I talk to these founders, um, I, I asked them, hey, why have you done it like that? And I said, well, I didn't want to hire people full time um, because I was worried that this was not going to work and I didn't want to re be responsible of having to let them go six months later. Right. And I say, okay, I, I understand that. But the reality is these people are then co-founders in your company and you will give them a few percentage points in, in this business. And, you know, investors will want to see that kind of commitment. And if that commitment isn't there, why should I? If people don't even believe in themselves, why should investors believe in them? I like that. You, you, you need to, so that, that's something else that I see quite, you know, I see this over, I've seen it this week again. It's just another case of just lots of consultants, you know, lots of freelancers working with one individual and it's just, that's just not investable. I think there's something in there as well, like about culture. I think, you know, um, I think, I mean, I, I, I think hiring is the most important thing you do in a business personally. I think because 
if you get, like I said, if you hire amazingly smart people who work incredibly hard, unlike these people who are not that, um, they you get really great results and they achieve great things. Um, because ultimately as a founder, I think ultimately, you know, I'm pretty rubbish at everything um, apart from talking about myself. And so it's good about getting other people who are incredibly skilled. And if you hire great people, you'll get great results. But you've got to give, they've, they've got to have a vested interest in what you're doing. You know, if they don't believe in growing that product and growing that business and then getting rewarded at the end in the same way that you do, then why would they give you give you their time and their, their sweat and their tears? Why would they give that to you? And so if you use that freelancer model, you're just not getting it. You're just not getting that return from them. Um, it's a two-way street. And people forget that recruitment is a two-way street. You know, you've got to give them as much as they're giving you. Um, and when that balance goes, that's when you get bad results. Um, and that's a, that's a sad thing to see. In the current climate, marketing is hard. But do you know what isn't hard? Making sure you never miss an episode of your favourite podcast. So tap the follow button on your podcast and you'll never miss out on the latest episodes of Unicorny or Marketing Difference. You can even go back and listen to our back catalogue of amazing episodes. If you do that, please leave us a review. It would mean so much. So building the team, building the product, uh, those are key things. One thing that I um, I was... I, I, I bang on about, but I want to get your view on it, is that I think the best valuable time, you, the most valuable time you can spend as an early stage founder, and by that I mean up until you start to see signs of PMF, product market fit, is you cannot waste time spending to your, speaking to your customers. You cannot spend time, waste time speaking to your customers and understanding what they want and understanding what they like about what you do and so forth. And I think too few founders have the courage to speak to their customers for fear that they might say something they don't want to hear. Um, because they're like, I've got this really great idea for a product. And, um, then they don't want to go and speak to a customer who says, you know what, mate, it's not really a problem for me. Yeah. Is that something you see? Yeah, sort of. Um, I, I mean, I get quite a lot of pitch decks where it's evident that that work hasn't been done. Right. And, and then I don't talk to the founders. So, but yeah, I get, I get every day. I get that. Again, I get Okay, so here we're getting into the good stuff around pitch decks. So you must get thousands a year. Yeah? Yes. Thousands. Now, given that they, yeah, they've got a great team, I, well, you, you sent me this email once, and I'm, I'm summarizing here. You sent me this email once, and you said to me in the most succinct way possible, you said, when you write a pitch deck, Tom, sell the opportunity, not the product. Okay. And before that, I'd been talking to them loads about my products and so forth. And then um, I did it the other way around and successfully raised a lot more money in a lot shorter time frame. And so when, I'm, when people are doing that, when they're selling the opportunity, what are the things that they should be saying that are going to get them noticed? So let's just maybe first explain um, what I meant when I said that to you. So what I see a lot is people launch into their product and it's always the problem, the solution. Yeah, there's a problem. Here's my solution. And it spent the whole deck talking about the solution. Oh, yeah, we've made some progress. We've got a great team. Please give us money. Yeah. And, and the problem with that is I'm not the customer. I don't want to buy the product. I've got no interest in the product. I couldn't care less about product. And no investor. When, so I don't know, most of the founders, maybe before, um, they, they write a pitch deck to investors. They should take a thousand euros or a hundred euros, open a brokerage account, and think about which stock companies that are listed on the stock market they should be investing in. 
right? And maybe they should just spend a day investing on the stock market before they write a pitch deck because, you know, immediately you get into the mind of an investor because the only thing that you care about is, is that stock price going to go up by a lot in a very short period of time? Yeah, because that is what investing is about. Yeah, so, but the founder needs to say is, look, right now my shares are worth almost nothing, but in 10 years time, they're going to be worth a huge amount of money. And the pitch deck is just to explain how that's going to happen. Yeah. And then you, you, you mentioned that in, 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 the, in the early intro, like what, what does really ambitious mean? Yeah. So when I see, you know, an angel investor invests into the Uber seed round and makes 5,000 times their money in nine years, yeah, that is, that is aspirational. Yeah. If I can make a thousand times my money, I haven't managed to do that yet. <laughs> you know, but I'm, I'm trying. I'm trying. At least, yeah. I, I, go Stakester. Um, <laughs> um, you know, I've made investments that are not uh, worth more than a hundred times their initial money. Yeah, the thousand x. We're, we're working on it. Yeah, but that's really. I, I think that's that. That's where it's at. Right. So, and if you say, yeah, look, you know, in five years' time, I'm going to have revenue of maybe five million euros or something like that. Thinking, yeah, okay. Now, because how much is that company worth? 100 million, maybe, if you're lucky. Yeah, and then what? That's just like, okay, maybe I made five, six, seven, eight times more money. Okay. Because there's several funding rounds and there's dilution mm -hmm. and so forth. It's like, that's not ambitious. I mean, it's okay to do, don't get me wrong. Now I'm going to rephrase that. That's not ambitious in the context of what I'm looking for, because I think it's a wonderful idea as an entrepreneur to set up a company and sell it for 50 million and have raised absolutely no capital from anyone for it. Yeah, I think you will be exceptionally pleased with yourself if you did that. Yeah, but for the investor who invested a whatever five million valuation and has got a failure rate of 80 percent, that's not particularly exciting, and that's the you know, that's basically what you have to keep in mind when you pitch to investors, venture capital investors, because of the way in which their funds work and so forth. They really only care about in companies that have a potential to become worth more than a billion dollars or, or, or pounds in, in your case. Yeah. And so that, that's sort of the ambition level that they're looking for. And actually, lately, they really only have started to care about companies that they think can be, can, uh, be worth $10 billion. Right, so the bar has has gone up. So it, you know that, that that's basically what what the ambition level is that professional institutional investors are looking for. Yeah, and from my angel investment perspective, I I care about the one hundred excess, the one thousand excess. That's sort of where I become super excited. That makes perfect sense to me. That's really good. Question from uh, some people in our audience: What are three things that you look for in a founder when you first meet them? Intelligence, energy, ability to listen. How do you demonstrate intelligence? I'm interested to know the answer. How do you demonstrate that? <laughs> I think you can see it in the eyes, Tom. It's not, it's not particularly difficult to. It's the way in which people articulate how they think and how they've thought things through. And if you ask them questions for an hour, you have an approximation of how, how, you know, how they think you know, and how, how smart are they? How, how do they think about problems how do they approach them how can they articulate that right 
So it's it's because I mean, look, my, when I talk to founders, I just ask them about the team, and I largely ask them about their customers and what problem they have and what they're going to do for them and how they're going to build that, how they're going to get it into their hands, you know, where they are currently, what their business model looks like, what the traction looks like, and so forth, right? So this. And, and, and you can tell from the answers whether somebody has really understood what they're doing. Yeah, because the answers are short, they're precise, it's crystal clear. You, you, there is no, you know, there, there is a great precision in, in how, how, they, how they think there is, and, and they can articulate it well, all of which is signs of intelligence. So that, that's sort of what, what I'm looking for. I'm obviously not doing an IQ test with them or something like that. Oh, okay, because when I first pitched to you, I just sat in a chair with a whiskey and a book and some Nietzsche. When you picked up the uh, the phone, just so it looked like I was really smart. The next question is, this is a good one. Super rare, but something that well, not super rare, happens all the time to every founder. No one has not experienced this. Um, so it's a really good question, and I'm going to put it into two forms. And I'm glad someone's asked this. What's the best way to react to rejection from an investor? I I think the 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 only thing you you, just, you can ask why. And if the investor has spent some time with you, or you have given up some time, some of your time for the investor, that goes beyond. So, so I get over a thousand pitch decks every year, right? So most of these I read and I say, "No thanks, I'm not interested." And people ask me why, and in, in most cases I don't respond because it's just I know so little about the companies. I can't really. I have very little intelligence to say, and I'm much. I'm, I'm worried that if I say something, the founders are going to take it seriously. Yeah. Right. And I, my suspicion is that that would do more harm than good. So therefore, I don't give an answer to that. Um, when I've spent an hour or longer with a team and, you know, learned something about them and about the company, then I try to tell them why I'm not investing. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's fine to, to ask why. Yeah. You will get a subset of the reasons for why people say no. Yeah. And it's actually, yeah. it's, actually, it's actually useful because you can calibrate your, the way in which you present your company. You can also, it's also helpful to actually ref, take that feedback and reflect on your business, whether this is, a, this is a question of substance or whether this is just a question of communication. Yeah, I get that. I think um, from my own experience, um, the rejections made me so much better at pitching. Yeah, they did. You know, like, as, look, as a founder, you've got to accept that you need the resilience needs to be one of your core character traits because you're going to get a lot of no's. Yeah, a lot of people are going to say no to you. And you've just got to be like, look, that's it. It's just an opportunity. And sometimes you have the most, most peculiar reasons. Like, well, one of our investors is a church and they don't like your business. So therefore, we're not backing you. <laughs> that's, right? That is. So, that's yeah. like, okay. <laughs> yeah, you're right. You're right. That is. And then you say, okay, right. game over. There's nothing I can say now. They <laughs> make, this, they make this right, you know? Yeah, yeah. God, that, that still hurts. Um, okay. They, um, but here's a second one for you to carry on from that. Now, not a humble brag, an outright brag here. Um, most of the time people say, if you get a no from an investor, that's it. A no's a no. Um, one of my favorite investors, uh, Chris, you obviously know as well, um, was initially a no, and then I managed to turn him around. Okay. And get, turn him into a, into a yes. Um, it wasn't a short process, but eventually it happened. So when people do say no, to you, you say no to people or other people in other roles when you've said no. Is it a no or is it a, and is there an opportunity to turn it around? And I'm going to say that from my own experience, I would say never, you can't turn around straight away because they've been to the IC, they've said no. 
But is it okay to go back to those investments when things have changed? Absolutely, always. Now, unless they've told you, look, this is out of remit for me. You're in Africa, I invest in Europe. Yeah. yeah? That, that's pointless. That's just a waste of time. Yeah. Or, hey, I just invest in fintech company, but you're an e-commerce company. You know, that's just that's a total mismatch between the investor and, and the company. And it just doesn't make any sense to bother them anymore, right? But um, if they're saying, hey, you're just too early or, yeah, I don't like it or, you know, for whatever reason, it's always, it's always a good idea to go back and say, hey, look, we've made enormous progress over the last three months or six months or 12 months, whatever it is, you know, have, do you want to have another look? Here's, here's what we've accomplished. Yeah. And, you know, I've invested in companies that I've previously said no to. You know, that, that happens definitely several times a year um, because either, look, it's either the company is doing something that's not right objectively and they, the founders would then admit that later, right? Or they pitched it really poorly or I haven't understood it. You know, it can, it can be any of those things. So it's, you know, it's always worth giving it another shot. Amazing. You are someone who works constantly all the time and incredibly efficiency, efficiently. Obviously, I'm stereotyping as well because you're German. And, um, you know, so what, what are your tips for founders in terms of to maximize their efficiency and productivity? Because I believe that if you aren't super productive as a founder, you might as well give up. Yeah. So in, there's, there's books that have been written about this over and over again, right? But I mean, for, for the way in which, okay, quick tips around personal productivity. Um, I structure my days in a way where I just have calls and meetings in the afternoons. I try to keep the mornings free. Um, on Fridays, I just work with portfolio companies, so I really have no, uh, I have only recurring meetings. It's just coaching sessions, and um, you know, in, in the mornings, the first thing that I do for the first hour or two, I just do work. I don't do any communication type thing. I don't do any email or anything else. I just think about investments. I think about the companies in my portfolio. I think about other things that I have to do, and then I do them. And then only when I'm finished with that, do I go into email because I have found that email is a great, it's just the context switching is so, so severe. You do that for an hour, your brain is, is, is quite sort of fraying, right? It's, it's very difficult to concentrate on anything. So first do the concentration, then you do some communication and then I do meetings and that kind of works very well for me. Um, that's sort of around personal productivity. You want to have calendar scheduling tools and things like that for sure. Right. Okay. Last question. When's the right time to raise money? There's quite a few different schools of thought around that. I subscribe to the you drink when you're offered, not when you're thirsty philosophy. Yeah. The, the other philosophy is um, keep the cap table free for the best investors. Yeah. And the, the time to raise is when you can capture those people. Yeah. Now, the reality is it's very frequently in between those two, meaning, you know, there is an investor, they offer you a little bit of money that you can really use right now. It's a great valuation. So take it. Yeah. As long as they're not toxic. Yeah. It pushes the company further along. You can raise more capital from great investors at a later date. There are, I don't know how many companies in the portfolio who came to me in 2019 and said, oh, Jens, I've just been offered lots of money, insane valuation. I totally don't deserve it. What should I do? 
I said, who's the investor? This investor. So oh, they're a good investor. Yeah, you should take the money. It's like, but in six months' time, you know, we would be like, blah, blah, blah. And we could maybe raise more money at a higher valuation from even better investors. And I said, well, we've got no idea what's happening in six months. <laughs> good advice. Like, I can tell you, there's, there's at least what three, four companies in, in the Angel Invest portfolio where I've had this wow. discussion. And, and they all took the money and they all called me and said, yes. Yeah, so, so one of them closed in February 2020. Huge round, Jeez. right? The complete industry went to zero one month later, yeah, nice. that they were in. So I, I think you never know what's going to happen. And if good investors offer you money at a good price, there's, and, you know, and you know you're going to raise in a few months, there's really relatively, there's no real reason not, not to take the money. And that's sort of how I think about it. And I know very few founders, if any, who've ever regretted doing that. But I know quite a few who didn't take the money, who then later said, oh, man, if I, if, why didn't I do that? Yeah. Can't raise me so hard right now when Q2 2020. Yeah. And, and nobody is funding anybody right now. So that's, and you never know when that's going to happen. So that, that's sort of my philosophy. The other thing that I would definitely stress, though, is um, do not take money from toxic people. It doesn't matter what they say. It doesn't matter. Nothing matters. They will destroy your company. I've seen this over and over again. Just don't take money from completely inexperienced investors or investors who would just have the wrong attitude, can't have the wrong background. Um, it's just really not worth it. All right. Fantastic. Jens, you've been a font of information as always. Super wisdom. I think this is... It's probably my favorite episode. So much I did it twice. And um, uh, I'm going to share this. Thank you so much. And on behalf of the community as well, thank you so much. Some really great piece of advice that really can help. Um, thanks so much. Thanks for having me.